We're in John 15 today. When you leave, you might want to pick up a Go Deep sheet and take it with you and look over it. And the questions will go back into John 15 in a deeper way. And if you'd like, you can join us at Bigby Coffee on Wednesdays at 7 for time together thinking through those things. Uh, we've come to the last of Jesus's seven great I am statements. There's actually 10 great I am statements in John. Three of them lack a direct object. And in some ways, those are the most startling. They are um, I am. Uh, before Abraham was, I am. I who speak to you, I am. Um, but we've been concentrating for the last couple months on those with a direct object. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the one we look at today, I am the true vine. Each time Jesus says something like this, we discover something important about him and in turn learn something important about ourselves. So Jesus' use of the emphatic I am must have unsettled his contemporaries who knew that was how God first introduced himself to Moses. And in a story from the Torah that every Jew knew, God spoke to Moses and ordered him to rescue the people of Israel from Egyptian slavery. The role of rescuer was more than what Moses wanted to take on, so he started making all kinds of excuses. At one point, he said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God answered Moses in some of the Old Testament's most famous words. I am that I am. Tell them that I am sent you. In Hebrew, the name of God, Yahweh, sounds like I am. So when Jesus said things like, I am, it's very emphatic. I, I am, literally, the bread of heaven. I am the light of the world. It sounded very much like he was introducing himself with God's own name. You can imagine how that made people feel. The final I am revelation in the book of John, I am the true vine, was made on the last night Jesus spent with his disciples before he was executed. He'd taken them to a secret location to eat the Passover meal together. As soon as the meal was over, Judas had slipped out, and Jesus knew he was going straight to the authorities to inform them about their whereabouts. Nevertheless, Jesus continued talking with his disciples for some time. This part of uh, John chapter 3 and chap or chapter 13 and all of chapter 14. But before Judas got back with a squad of police, Jesus calmly gathered his disciples and they left. That's the end of John chapter 14. Chapter 15 recounts what Jesus said to them as they were making their way out of the city through the gate and up on the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane. At some point in their walk, they had to pass by the temple. And it may have been just then that Jesus said to them, this is John 15, verses 1 through 8, I am the true vine. That same emphatic uh, double I, I, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener or the great farmer. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes 
so that it will bear even more fruit. It'll be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Recently, an exceptionally popular pastor and writer came out with a book in which he criticized the church's, and I'll quote, incessant habit of reaching back into the old covenant concepts teaching, sayings, and narratives. And later in the book, he asked readers, would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant? Now, I haven't read that book. I've heard about it, but I haven't read it, so I realized that his words may have been taken out of context. But that said, it seems to me the church has made precisely the opposite mistake. We've not reached back into Old Covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives nearly enough. What we've done instead is reach back into Reformation concepts, teachings, and sayings. And the great leaders of the Reformation were reaching back into the concepts and, and sayings of the scholastic period before them. But Jesus did reach back into the concepts, teachings, sayings, narratives, images of the Old Testament. So we must do the same. We'll not understand Jesus by forcing his words into a conceptual frame he didn't use. His frame was the Old Testament. If we try to understand Jesus without reaching back into those Old Testament concepts, teachings, sayings, narratives... We'll simply substitute our concerns for God's and transform Jesus into a 21st century American instead of a 1st century Jew. In this I am saying, there is an overarching image, the vine. And there are a couple of controlling terms, abide or remain or dwell, depends on what version you're using, and fruit. Abide occurs 11 times in this passage. Fruit occurs eight times. We'll consider those terms, which have a lot to say about us, next week. This week, we'll focus on the image, the vine, which has a lot to say about Jesus. It comes directly from the pages of the Old Testament. From Psalm 80, Hosea 10, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 15, 17, 19. The image of the vine was so recognizable from the Old Testament that the builders of the temple decorated its entrance gates with an enormous golden grapevine. And temple authorities regularly commissioned artisans to add new golden grapes, sometimes the size of a man or almost the size of a man, to that vine. It's possible that Jesus and his disciples, remember I mentioned they would be walking past the temple at some point, were walking past the temple 
in his iconic grapevine when Jesus said, I, I am the vine. In the Old Testament, the image of the vine usually represents Israel, though it also is used to represent Israel's king. And in Psalm 80, it represents both Israel and someone the psalmist refers to as the son of man. The vine, when it stands for Israel, is usually unproductive and deteriorating. In Jeremiah 2, for example, God says, I had planted you, and he's talking about Israel. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Israel was supposed to produce fruit that would bless the entire world, but his fruit was scant and of poor quality. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's distinguishing himself not from a false vine, but from one that had become corrupt and was growing wild. Now, if we'll pause to think about what Jesus is saying about himself, we'll be struck by the enormity of this claim. We kind of rush over this and we miss it. Even apart from the deity-like use of the emphatic I am, this is enough to take one's breath away. Ask anyone in first century Judea, who is the vine? And the answer will be Israel. Israel's the vine. God planted Israel in the promised land, Jeremiah 2, Isaiah 5, to bear fruit that God desired, the blessing of all the nations of the earth. But in Isaiah's words, God looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Jesus says, I am the true vine. What Israel failed to be, I am. What Israel failed to do, I do. I am Israel fulfilled. Israel as Israel was meant to be. I'm that. It's an astonishing thing to say. Imagine if I stood in the pulpit on, on Independence Day, 4th of July weekend. Je Jesus said this at Passover time, which was Israel's Independence Day. And said, I am America. I am the promise of America. I'm the city set on a hill. I am a beacon to the world. I am America. You'd think I was a raving megalomaniac. But Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. We miss the grandeur of this claim when we tear it from its Old Testament roots and impose our own meaning on it. And when we tear it from its biblical context, it's usually because we're rushing past what it says about Jesus in order to see what it says about us. That's pretty natural. We're, we're self-centered. And what it says about us is extremely important. We need to know it. But Jesus has priority. We won't get right what it means for us when we get wrong what it means for Jesus. Jesus always has priority. Now, I mentioned Jeremiah 2 and Isaiah 5, which are foundational to what Jesus is claiming here. But so is Psalm 80, written during a terrible time of war and devastation. The psalmist writes, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches, it sent out its boughs to the sea, its shoots as far as the river, but the vine, Israel, was being ravaged. So the psalmist pleads with God, watch over this vine. 
the root, your right hand is planted. The son you've raised up for yourself. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. The son of man you have raised up for yourself. So, Psalm 80, this vine is described as the son God raised up for himself, the man at God's right hand, the son of man. It's no coincidence that Jesus' preferred self-designation was the son of man. Jesus believed that God was carrying out his original plan for Israel through him. He was the son God called out of Egypt. That's Hosea. Matthew, by the way, quotes that. He was the son called out of Egypt. He was the seed of Abraham. He was the fulfillment of the promise which God was determined to keep. God did not give up on the promise when Israel disobeyed. Instead, he kept the promise through the true Israelite, the true vine, the son at his right hand, the son of man. He kept it through Jesus. Many people in Israel were waiting for God to come to them. In the words of Psalm 80, they were pleading, return to us, O God Almighty. He did return through Jesus. They were waiting for God to keep his promise to Abraham. He did keep it through Jesus. They were waiting for a new Passover, one that would again set them free. It came through Jesus. They were looking for the king who would represent Israel, the son of man who would come in glory. They got him through Jesus, and Jesus knew it. He understood who he was. He was the true vine. What that means is that God is at work in the world through Jesus. If you want to experience God, you'll find him in Jesus. Sometimes non-Christians say things like, you Christians think you've got a corner on truth. No, we don't. You think Christianity is the only way. No, we don't. You think you're right and everyone else is wrong. No, we don't. We think Jesus is the truth. We think Jesus is the only way. We think Jesus is right even when we're wrong. This claim Jesus made has important implications for our understanding of God and what he's done is recorded in the biblical story. Sometimes people present the biblical story as if God started out in one direction, changed his mind, and then went in another direction altogether. Maybe that's what that pastor who wrote that book was thinking. The story goes like this. God planned to set right what had gone wrong in the world through a people he set apart for himself, Israel. He called a man, Abraham, and through him built a nation. He gave that nation special laws and called it to be a light to the rest of the world. But instead of being the world's light, that that nation, Israel, got lost in the world's darkness. Instead of bringing healing to the nations as God intended, Israel was infected by the contagion that was killing the nations. The doctor came down with the disease. Israel was supposed to be the rescuer that would set the nations free from the trap of sin. Instead, it fell into the trap. So, so far, so good. That is the biblical story. 
But at this point, in some popular versions of the story, God gives up on Israel and goes to plan B. Well, I guess that wasn't such a good idea. What was I thinking, God says? I'll have to come up with an alternative. But if Jesus was right, if Jesus was right, God didn't give up on plan A, plan only. God did not give up on Israel, even if Israel sometimes gave up on God. God stubbornly stuck to the plan, the call of Israel, until it came to fruition in Israel's representative, Israel's Messiah, Jesus, the true vine. Jesus always was plan A for Israel and for the world. If this is true, then the idea that God decided to replace Israel with the church, the view is known as replacement theology, is a distortion. So here's the most important thing I'm going to say today, or at least from a theological perspective. God did not find a replacement for Israel in the church. He found a fulfillment for Israel in the Messiah, Jesus. The church is not a second vine that replaces the first. Jesus is the vine, the true vine, and it is through him that believers, Jewish and Gentile, are grafted into the one people of God. Now, how does this apply to us? That's what Jesus is about to tell us. We're going to get into that in detail next week. Today, I'm just going to mention a couple things. And it's sad that I have to mention this first one, but I do. First, that Jesus is the vine is a stinging rebuke to any anti-Semitic feelings we may have. Let's not forget that Jesus was a Jew sent, as he said, to the lost sheep of Israel. But not only was he incarnated in Jewish flesh, he was and is the true vine, the representative of the nation, Israel as Israel was always meant to be. Hatred of the Jews has surfaced in every generation since before Christ was born. But it has no place among us who've been grafted into the true Israel, into the Messiah, Jesus. Jewish hatred is Jesus' hatred. If we have a problem with the Jews, we have a problem with Jesus. He's not only a Jew, he is the Jew. The true Israel. He is the vine. Second, that Jesus is the vine stresses his absolute priority. Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. Vines grow branches, not the other way around. No branch ever grew a vine. The vine lives without the branch, but the branch will die without the vine. The vine is supreme. When we forget this, as churches are liable to do, the church stops looking like a living thing and starts looking more like a machine. The true church grows from Jesus, not from our plans. On our own, the best we can do is build an organization, add attendees, or increase a budget. But we can't grow the church. Growth requires life, and life comes from the vine, the true vine. 
from Jesus. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, be magnified in our eyes. Our thoughts of you, our words about you, even when they are most glorious, have fallen far short of the truth. In our church, and in our eyes, be magnified. Lord, until our hearts, our imaginations, and our dreams are filled with you. Amen.